There you go. That is true. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, so we are going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, this uh, kind of completes some of the uh, some of the uh, topics, really, that were brought up in uh, Jeremiah 30. And um, I wanted to highlight a few verses from Jeremiah 30 as we lead up to where we are. So if you look at Jeremiah 30, um, verse 3, it says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So days are coming. Uh, this is definitely looking toward the future. Uh, this is one of the, the prophecies here. And then this this statement I will restore the fortunes of my people. And this is repeated if you scoot on over to verse 18. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Uh, so again, God says, the days are coming, uh, through Jeremiah, days are coming, I will restore, I will restore. Another key verse in verse 21, the prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. Uh, this is uh, a look toward uh, the Messiah, of course. Um, the prince that shall be coming. And then leading on up to where we'll be highlighting in 31, uh, this concept of uh, relationship. Uh, for reasons that we may not know fully till glory, uh, God has chosen a certain people and he has initiated and sustained and continued to seek relationship with his people. So in verse 22, it says, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And then finally, the lead into uh, chapter 31 in verse 24, it says, in the latter days, you will understand this. And I, I really like that verse because on the one hand, it's a message of hope that all this is going to make sense one day, um, which I think in itself is very comforting, right? Um, if, if you're ever in a situation and, and someone who maybe has the authority to understand a situation, has the knowledge or whatever, and someone can come along and truthfully say, you know, this is all going to turn out fine. This is all going to be fine, right? How, how comforting that is. And, and, and here we have, you know, you're, you will understand this. This will all make sense. But then this other part where it says in latter days, which also means I know this doesn't make sense now. I know you don't understand it now. But you will, and there's more going on here. I'm not really even expecting you to understand it all now, right? And I think that's um, something that uh, we can continue to apply now. It, we are so blessed with, with the scriptures. Just crazy how blessed we are to have the scriptures. But in spite of everything we have, all the revelation of God that we have in front of us, we still don't understand it all, do we, Frank? We still don't. We always want a little more. 
right? We always want a, a little more understanding, a little more insight, uh, a little more um, uh, reassurance uh, uh, to, you know, because we're scared sometimes and we're unsecure and how's this all going to turn out? And uh, so even then, in the latter days, you will understand this. And that leads directly into verse 1. At that time, referring to these later days, latter days, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Throughout chapter 31, especially in the first half of it, you're going to hear several references to um, the northern kingdom, especially uh, when you hear the, uh, the tribe of Ephraim mentioned, when you hear Rachel being mentioned. Uh, this is all referring to the northern kingdom. Now, of course, they had been assumed and conquered by the Assyrians quite a long time before, right? When, you know, we talk about all of Israel, but then little Israel was the northern kingdom. Uh, the Assyrians had already taken that. Judah, the southern kingdom, is kind of where Jeremiah is right now. But you're going to see several references to this northern kingdom, which means that Jeremiah has in view a day when those kingdoms are going to be back together again, a reunified uh, Israel. So that's when it says, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. That's, that's um, introducing that topic or at least uh, emphasizing it. All right. Verse 2, thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I don't, I don't have it totally worked out in my head as to um, these sections, which are kind of um, these poetic oracles. Um, Sometimes it's not exactly clear um, uh, the audience. Uh, sometimes it's not exactly clear where in time this is talking about. Um, but it seems to me that this is looking toward a day after, you know, Jeremiah's been preaching for the first 29 chapters that repent or are you going to be disciplined right and and he said over and over that this discipline is coming from the north very explicitly uh, everybody knows where this is heading this seems to be looking toward after that this is already the return right so in essence if you take all of Jeremiah's um, teachings together uh, it's a round trip to Babylon right so this is the return trip that's perhaps being envisioned um, after there has been, uh, we'll see some language about uh, repentance and, and so forth. So this appears to be after the fact when, when things are being restored. Okay, so that's kind of the time frame here. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword. So this is probably all those people that were the remnant, right? The people who didn't fall by the sword to Babylon. The people that were carried back, uh, they had some privilege. We talked about that. Um, and so the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And um, 
you know, we don't hear as or think about grace as much in the Old Testament, perhaps, as to do in the New Testament. But grace shows up right here, and, and this, um, this, uh, you know, unmerited favor toward these people, um, those that survived the sword, they found grace. It says when Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away, and here we have another reminder of this. Um, relationship, this covenant, where he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you, right? So this, if you think about it, God's relationship with these people has gone back a very long time, all the way, all the way back to the start of time even. And he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And, and I'm sure that carries this notion of I have loved you. I have continued to love you. Uh, I am going to keep on loving you. I mean, it's just a never-ending thing, and that leads into this concept with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Uh, just a wonderful example of relationship. And uh, one commentator said, this has the radical simplicity of a marriage vow, right? Uh, I've loved you. It's everlasting love. I've continued my faithfulness to you. Um, basically, we belong together forever. And I think that's why um, marriage uh, specifically and, and committed relationships um, within families and so forth even more uh, generally, that's why it's so beautiful when we see this, right? When you hear about, oh, wow, they, you're married for 65 years or so forth or you know the queen how faithful she was for all of her reign you know we admire someone who can make a commitment and finish that commitment right i mean we just we love that um it 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 speaks to the heart of you know kind of get how god made us right and that's why also it is so horrible when we see those broken right? Um, the betrayal of a, of a marriage or something. I mean, it is, you know, I'll have people I maybe have seen a handful of times over a few years in the office and somebody will come in and say, well, you know, my husband left me. And it is just a gut punch, even though I really don't even know this person, but it just, it just speaks against everything the way we were built. We feel betrayal. Uh, we just hate that. Uh, you could be watching a movie, right? And this happens and you get mad, right? I mean, it's like legit emotion at just stuff on the screen, you know, just, you know, but that's kind of how we're built. Uh, it evokes something in us when there's betrayal. And I think part of the reason for that is because it's so against how God made us. And he is the ultimate example where he has this everlasting love and says, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Verse 4. Man, I'm going to have to pick up the pace. Although I am teaching next week, so I could just, <laughs> I could just do that. Um, verse 4. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. You're going to see some building and later some planting imagery. Um, you can turn here if you want to. You don't have to. But in the intro um, to Jeremiah, which is chapter 1, um, 
we, we find that this is, this is where God's heading. And if you look in verse 10, um, uh, well, I guess to verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck down and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So the message coming from Jeremiah was never just destruction, destruction, destruction. It was discipline and restoration. And so we have at the end here, it's also to build and to plant. And we'll see that echoed, uh, or, or I guess better um, said to elaborate it uh, in these uh, coming verses. Uh, verse 4, again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. And you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Joy is coming back to you, Israel. You may not know it. You may not feel that way. You may not can even imagine that you're ever going to feel good about things again. But joy is going to be coming so much so that you will literally be dancing in the streets. And when you are in a bad spot, the last thing you can think about is not feeling that way, right? Um, somebody could tell you the funniest joke in the world, but if you're just not in that mood, it is not funny. It is just almost offensive. But here we say, you shall, the day is coming, right? You shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards, I'm in verse five, on the mountains of Samaria. So this was a Northern area, right? So already we're getting hints about reunification. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. All right, so here another reference to the north. Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So here's a picture of the whole nation being restored um, so that there's bounty, there's fruitfulness of the land, and there is worship of God. Verse 7. For thus says... The Lord sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And there's that word remnant. I'm going to highlight it because I forgot to do that. Behold, more explicitly now, it says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Uh, this would include, remember, there were quite a few people that tried to escape to Egypt. Right? So some were going north, some went south. Um, so he's gathering them all. And I love this verse. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. Ever since Darwin came along, it has been assumed that human nature is survival of the fittest or that the animal kingdom is survival of the fittest. Um, it's interesting that the modern-day humanist is perfectly fine to adopt, to adopt Darwin's teaching about how we got here, but abandons it when it comes to how we live here, right? Because if it really is survival of the fittest, then there is no moral reason I should 
really care at all about anyone other than me and my family, right? It, there's no moral basis to say why I should help a handicapped person. There's no, there's no logical standing on that, right? Now, I don't, there's some massive disconnect in their logic. I don't know how they get from, we're all here by accident, but we don't have, we, we're not supposed to behave that way now. I don't, there's no, there's no really good way to get from there to here. There are arguments, there have been attempts to do it, but um, they're not very good. And uh, I've mentioned before, but once again, if you have anyone who um, may be on the fringes of Christianity who wants to explore some of those arguments, or if you yourself want to have a good response to that, I, can, I can't over-recommend um, the uh, podcast teachings from Tim Keller about this. Uh, I mentioned it when I preached, um, and uh, I actually... Um, if you're interested sometime, we might do this. I, I, I bought the, um, the public um, rights to the video versions of this that we could watch in here sometime. I mean, they're just really, really good. But, um, but here we have uh, God through Jeremiah saying, the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, she who is in labor, a great company, they shall return here. None of those people are gonna make it home, so to speak, without help, right? But God is saying, no, they will, they will be here too. I'm not leaving anyone out. Um, the disability doesn't define that person. My relationship with them defines that person. I see, uh, and it's really a privilege to see lots of people when they let their guard down. And whatever the person's main issue that I'm seeing it's almost like they're embarrassed to tell me about it because that's how come they have come to see themselves as just that, right? Um, they might be embarrassed about uh, a rash in a bad place or maybe uh, being overweight or maybe, uh, you know, some physical attribute and they have come to see themselves in a negative light. And something as simple as saying, you know, you're way more than just this disease that you're dealing with, right? You realize that, right? And sometimes just telling people that um, is reassuring to them. And I think this is saying, no matter what your physical or whatever impairment is, you're part of this. If you're in the remnant, it doesn't matter. You're in the remnant, um, the blind and the lame. And, and I can't but imagine that back in the day, there would have been a lot of people that were lame. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. Right? Who's taking the initiative here? God's taking the initiative. I will lead them back. And with echoes of Psalm 23, it says, I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I'm a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, another reference to the, the north saying... Um, and, of course, coming back from Babylon, they would have walked through all those territories, right? They would have been coming from the north. So it's almost like, you know, we're gathering up people and then, you know, people will be going to their home. And, of, of course, well, we'll see it in just a, another verse. The, this 
shepherding language, right? Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Um, this concept of the good shepherd we heard in Isaiah, and of course we hear uh, in the Gospels, we, we heard in John about our good shepherd. Um, but up until this point, uh, shepherd language has been referring to the priests who have not been good shepherds, right? And so now we have the contrast that uh, in this day, now you're going to have some good shepherding going on. Um, things are getting better uh, from every angle, right? So we've, we've talked about the, the, um, the bounty of the land. We're talking about the relationship between them and God. Um, all this is happening, and now we have uh, better shepherding happens. Verse 11, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and for my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So in verse 14, as it closes out this little section of oracle, even the priests, there were some priests who were faithful. There were some priests who were part of that remnant. And, and they will also be share, uh, sharing in this abundance. Verse 15, a little bit of a transition here. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Uh, Rachel, of course, had uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, there was the the tribe of Benjamin, but then there were there was Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons, right? Um, and this is all, again, referring to the north and the devastation that had been there and, and so forth. Um, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. We know Rachel died in, in childbirth, died giving birth to uh, Benjamin um, on the way. I think it was on the way back to her uh, ancestral home. Uh, and that's what this is uh, kind of referring to. And I had one commentator who really dug into this really deeply and, and looked at um, verse 16 where it says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and, and your eyes from tears. Went back into this section and said, you know, there were at least nine comforting promises that Jeremiah gives to Rachel, you might say, um, so when, when the Lord says, keep your voice from weeping, that there were very concrete reasons for that. And just to go back uh, in verse 7, uh, we have the promise of the return of worship. Uh, in the latter part of 7, we have the return of the promise of prayer. Uh, in verse 8, where it says that we're going to be reestablishing these people, that we have preservation of uh, even the blind and the lame. Uh, we have uh, the fact that they would return when we talk about these uh, people that are coming back. The shepherding we talked about, there's redemption. 
the provision. We talked about this abundance that's coming. So um, very concrete reasons why God could say, keep your voice from weeping. Um, you'll remember um, that there's this uh, reference um, in Matthew in the, the story of Jesus. I'll flip over briefly to Matthew chapter 2 where this passage is quoted um, in the context of uh, Herod killing the baby boys. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So it's interesting that, that this got pulled all the way back um, from Jeremiah. And uh, as, as we have... Uh, taken so many sections of Jeremiah to heart as they're very um, common to us, uh, such was the case. So when Matthew quoted that, everybody knew what that was referring to. All right, let's pick up in um, verse uh, 17, and then we'll hear... Uh, Ephraim uh, again and um, this voice of uh, what I think is repentance. Verse 17 it says there is hope for your future declares the Lord and your children shall come back to their own country. Verse 18 I've heard Ephraim grieving and my Bible puts a quote here so that we're basically now hear Ephraim speaking. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined, but like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And then we have um, paternal language in response, beginning in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Uh, this phrase, for as often as I speak against him, uh, the commentators say this isn't really the way we use that phrase and where you know I'm going to speak against someone. It's basically a condemnation sort of thing. Um, they say the flavor of this verse is... Um, more like as often as I speak about him and what was done, but it's not, um, it's not in a, in a negative way. It's, it's basically saying, I think of him so often. I think of him all the time. Um, I remember him still, uh, and my heart yearns for him. I sh will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. What does that kind of language make you think of? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I mean, this sounds like prodigal son language to me, right? The father thinking of his son uh, so much so that he's always on the lookout, sees him coming, and is ready to welcome him home. That's, that's the language I, I see here. And then again, uh, verse 21, this 
uh, kind of the reality that you are coming home. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O Virgin Israel, return to these your cities. We saw that um, in the early chapters, chapters 2, 3, 4, that there was very much a, a marriage covenant uh, language that Jeremiah used um, to describe the, the broken covenant or the, the broken relationship. Uh, and it talked about uh, a broken betrothal and so forth. So when he says, return, O virgin Israel, it's almost like, um, you know, you're, you're fresh again. You, you know, we're renewing our vows, so to speak. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on earth, a woman encircles a man. So, uh, Dan and I have talked about that sometimes commentaries gloss over certain verses that they can't explain. Interestingly, I found just the opposite with this verse. Uh, everybody wants to take a shot at this, all right? So, here's the ESV says, For the Lord has created a new thing on earth, a woman encircles a man. The uh, New American says basically the same thing. It says a woman encompass, will, shall encompass a man. Uh, the NIV says a woman will return to the man. Holman Bible says a female will shelter a man. Um, everybody speculates, what does this mean? What does this mean? Some people say, well, it's going to be such... Um, a dramatic change that um, that the women are going to be the initiators of relationships. That's how different this new order is going to be. Some people say, no, this is referring to Mary embracing um, Jesus. <clears throat> uh, well, I don't know. But a lot of people <laughs> want to speculate. Um, uh, a little difficult with backsliding is what we got here on the King James backsliding daughter, and then oh, wa waver of faithless daughter, yeah, uh, and, and of course, be Mary? well, it says this: the next phrase for the Lord has created a new thing on earth. You know, this there's some something new that God's going to do, and well, it's good. Referring to Mary Magdalene, maybe or that. <laughs> I didn't hear that one, but that would also be uh, perhaps embracing a man. Um, one said that um, this meant uh, uh, protection for a mighty man, uh, again, thinking that it was referring to Jesus. I, I don't know. It's interesting, but uh, the, I guess the concept is uh, however things have been, this is going to be different, and maybe this refers to some you know, idiom that has since been lost to us, I don't know. But I, I did kind of chuckle that uh, I expected them to just ignore it, you know, but I was like, okay, this is, they're, they're, they're going there, they're, they're taking a shot at this. Uh, it would be interesting to get a Jewish perspective. Oh, absolutely. You know, from an uh, Orthodox rabbi. Yeah, um, one, one commentator made it sound, said the word man was translated mighty man and, and was the same type of language that the Lord had referred to himself on some other occasion in the but but when I looked up my limited Hebrew stuff I couldn't verify that it, it the word is just a, a, a strong young man is is as good as I could could uh, find in any event 
Uh, verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitation of righteousness, O holy hill. Uh, this kind of, um, this a woman in circles a man thing, I, when I said, you know, maybe this is just a figure of speech, so to speak, that we just don't understand. Um, we're getting it. We're going to get two other examples of that, um, and and this is one of them. Uh, it says, "Once more shall they use these words: The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill." Um, this apparently was something that was said, some phrasing that was common, and they say, "Okay, you're gonna you're gonna be able to say that again." Verse 24, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks, for I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Uh, again, this is, um, we talked about building and planting, and, and here we have agriculture happening again. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. So, um, it's interesting, I don't know, this is like a, a vision, and uh, he's been dreaming this and he woke up and he's feeling good <laughs> feeling refreshed um but then i guess he he's back at it again in verse 27 i don't know it's it's interesting behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will sow the house of israel and the house of judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast it shall come to pass that as i have watched over them to pluck up and to break down to overthrow destroy and bring harm so I will watch over them to build and to plant. So in the same way that I, I brought them down for punishment, I'm going to build them up. And um, uh, it's a promise. And now we have this other figure of speech. It says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, this is not a phrasing that I grew up with. Um, but the concept is something the father did affected the child, right? And so uh, if you think about it, if you're in exile, and they were going to be there a while, right? At least 70 years, right? Because they were told, put down roots, make babies, plant gardens, you know, just live your life, be good citizens, but they knew that wasn't their home. Now, can you imagine a generation or two in, and they start to realize, the only reason we didn't do anything wrong, the only reason we're here is because of what our ancestors did, right? So that's the saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So that was the phrasing. But it gets real serious real quick in verse 30. It says, but everyone shall die for their own sin. So whatever, whatever this punishment was for the sins of the father situation, in this new world, which we're on the threshold of in the next verse, but everyone shall die for their own sin. So this is getting very personal now, which makes you wonder, well, hmm, I'm not sure if I like this deal any better. <laughs> you know? Um, but here's the, new, here's the new phrase. Each man who eats sour grapes, his, his teeth shall be set on edge. So you, get, you truly reap what you sow individually now. 
because we like to have somebody else to blame. Exactly. We can't exactly. Um, we love to have someone to blame. Um, it does make us feel at least a little better, doesn't it? <laughs> Whose fault is this? Um, <laughs> more than a few times I've had some complaints show up about something that didn't happen in a timely way or whatever, and, and I'm like, yeah, I don't blame you for being upset at that, and I'll kind of troll through the chart and see what happened, and I realize, okay, yeah, that was me. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't order what I thought I'd clicked or whatever. So very humbling. Um, all right, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, right? So we, we hear this same intro again. Behold, the days are coming. It's not here yet, but I, I want you to know what's coming. This is gonna, you're going to like this. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Wow, that little section is already packed with stuff. I will make a new covenant, not like the old covenant. And the old covenant that is being referred to here, the covenant when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt, what do we call that covenant? Mosaic, Mosaic covenant. <clears throat> Sometimes it's called the Sinaitic covenant because it was on Mount Sinai. But yeah, that's, that's exactly what that was. So um, we, it was given to them in Exodus. It was repeated in Joshua, uh, right? That, you know, you follow me, I will be, you'll be my people, I will be your God. And they say, oh, yes, Lord, we will be your people, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, that was, that was the covenant. Um, but it says, this is going to be, this is going to be different. It's not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them up out of Egypt. By the way, my covenant, which they broke, in case... Nobody remembered. I'm going to put that in there. Though I was their husband. Right? So here we have this marriage language that's kind of been either explicitly or implicitly present, not just in this chapter, but throughout all of Jeremiah, this broken covenant. Um, Even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. All right. And we're definitely gonna gonna um, uh, go over this again next week. Uh, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. How was the original law given to the people? It was written on tablets of stone, right? It was written on tablets of stone. They could look at them. They could break them. <laughs> Um, they were, you know, had to be re-given, of course. Um, they were external to the person. They were definitely a set of external rules that they were to follow. This, this law says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Um, This is really the only place in the Old Testament where this phrase, New Covenant, is mentioned. Now, this covenant, maybe not as explicitly named, it does show up in other areas. Um, It's kind of referred to in a glancing blow uh, in Joel, you know, where he says, you know, in this new day, my sons and daughters will prophesy and so forth. That's quoted in Acts. Um, Ezekiel, who is somewhat of a contemporary of Jeremiah, um, talks about a similar situation. But this idea of a new covenant as explicit as it is here, is the only place in the entire Old Testament that we hear that phrasing, right? But we, we hear it again, right? And I guess we'll probably close with, with this. So flip over to Luke chapter 22, and you guys know about this. Uh, this is... Um, you know, anytime you're getting to the latter part of the Gospels, you know, this is all uh, the week leading up to the crucifixion, right? Um, uh, all the Gospels kind of wind down this way. And here we have um, the in the upper room in the Lord's Supper, and you can look at, beginning at Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table. The apostles were with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly decide, desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, interestingly, Jeremiah is saying there's going to be a new covenant, not like the covenant when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what was the kind of the remembrance that they were told to do over and over at that time? What was it? It was Passover, right? They were told, do this, do this. This was a, a yearly thing to purposefully look back at that covenant. So here they are, hundreds of years later after Jeremiah, and they are having Passover. So here you have the Passover lamb bringing Passover to the his apostles. It says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you think about it in a certain way, you could almost, I know that this may, in tone, it may not have been there, but um, all these other times that they've celebrated Passover, was there maybe something in Jesus that says, man, I want them to know how this is going to turn out. I want them to know why they've been celebrating this for the last umpteen hundred years, Right? They're not going to believe how this all works out. So when he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, he's, he's like, this is where it's happening. All of, all of the whole Bible that they knew at the time is leading up to this very day. He says, I took a cup. Verse 17, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you, from that point on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They took the cup. And he says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here we have the new covenant being mentioned again has not really been mentioned since Jeremiah, right? But Jesus pulls that forward. He's pulling that forward and say, you know, there was a new covenant. This is the new covenant. My blood, which of course, even then they didn't have it all figured out, but they were going to see in a few days. And then when the Holy Spirit came, it was all going to start to make sense. But Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So we're just going to have to put a bookmark there and start. Yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I make one mention? Uh, Please. attended uh, Messianic uh, Passovers. Right, right. And, uh, one of the things they, they think was everybody has a cup of wine. Right. What they'll do is they say the cup you took, which really made this significant, was the cup of um, Elijah. I always had one empty cup ready in a place made for Elijah to come. Okay. Took that cup, and that was a symbol for them. So this is different. Right. Very different. For thousands of years, we always had that cup sitting there. Nobody touched it for the whole meal. And that was symbolizing, it. well, he takes that cup, and that's what he takes this. So it's uh, nice. kind of... Not everybody had authority to grab that cup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, We'll close. Oh, we'll. Uh, he said that, uh, like in a messianic uh, oriented Seder meal, um, that the cup that is set at the table uh, reserved for Elisha uh, is usually not used. But um, as it's presented, that when Jesus did it and took that cup, and then that's how he served the wine, was basically saying that. Uh, this is this is the this is new. This is not the way we've seen Passover done all these years. Um, so that probably perked up their interest right away. Fulfill the prophecy. Yeah. Fulfill the prophecy. All right, real quick, Father, we thank you uh, for the richness of Scripture. We thank you for the timeliness of it and the way that things can be connected hundreds of years apart. And we thank you for our connection uh, hundreds of years apart. And we look forward uh, to the rest of the story in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.